Welcome to Not Fake News on 91.7 FM KVRX, which is what you're listening to right now. I apologize for the delay. There was a bit of a problem with the audacity. Uh, my name is Anurag Singh. I'm joined in the booth by Wes Dotson, who is a co-founder for the Texas Order. Uh, and yes, it's just us two today, which is kind of like last semester when it was just us two. Right. But uh, yes, as, as Wes mentioned, we're going to be discussing the United Nations speech given by President Trump, I think it was two days ago. Mm -hmm. And then right after that, we're going to be moving to some other uh, important issues, including uh, a new green card uh, probe. Uh, Restriction that the President Trump has has recently talked about. So with that, let's just get right into it. Um, <clears throat> so yes, as Wes mentioned, there was uh, a United Nations General Assembly uh, meeting Tuesday where President Trump addressed the United Nations and he praised his administration's America First policies. He he talked about the International Criminal Court. He accused the Venezuelan President Maduro of corruption. And he announced new sanctions against uh, Maduro's inner circle. And he also accused Iran of sowing, quote, chaos, death, and destruction. And uh, many of the world leaders and dignitaries in the General Assembly kind of erupted in laughter when he said uh, that he has the most accomplished president in U.S. history. And, uh, yeah, so obviously that was quite the talk of the town. Uh, well, it was the talk of the town. Now we're talking about the Kavanaugh hearings, which are happening right now. But we've been talking about Kavanaugh for the past, I think, three weeks. So we are just going to let the political pundits talk about Kavanaugh, and we're going to be talking about the United Nations speech. So, Wes, what are your general thoughts about the United Nations speech, and more specifically the substance, not just the part that he you know, got laughed at? Right, yeah. So I, I think it fits into his general conception of what globalism is, and I think that's different than what most people talk about when they're talking about globalism in terms of the way that, you know, uh, political science or, or government uh, talks about globalism. I think Trump sees it really more as globalism is comparable to elites or is even you know synonymous with the concept of elites that he rails about in his speeches internally as well as abroad. This idea of seeing globalists the same way that you know globalism and globalists are talked about in the circles of his base. You know this idea of globalism as a cabal against the United States led by elites and certainly, you know, something that is inimical to American interest and American democracy. And so when he rails about globalism in his speech, it's pretty obvious that he doesn't quite understand what it means because he talks about, you know, uh, the the need for the U United States to put its interests first as well as uh, he talks about respecting everybody's rights to worship and work and what have you. Um, and then goes on to talk about the shared goal for, you know, the military interest in Syria and promoting democracy uh, and, and sanctioning Iran as a, a shared goal. So there's this really weird tension in terms of the, the posturance is there against globalism, but the policy fits right in line with all the other administrations we've seen in terms of how he's addressing the U.N. from this position. And it, and it goes right to the heart of the you know thing we'll be talking about in a bit, this idea of uh, President Trump exporting drug prohibitions or encouraging drug prohibitions within the UN and UN signed countries. Uh, so it's, it's this very weird tension between the way he postures and, you know, uh, bloats about globalism, but then the policy behind it is just not there. We see the same continuance of policy that we saw in the Bush and Obama administration. Yeah, I, I really agree with uh, almost everything that you said there. Uh, there was a, like you said, I mean, there was a good article in The Spectator by Michael Tracy today about uh, about this whole phony globalism, phony anti-globalism. And, you know, the president uh, 
like you said, I mean, I think it's very politically expedient for him to mm-hmm. shun globalism, you know, and indeed, you know, many of his, much of his base is, quote, anti-globalist. But in policy, he's continuing many of the policies that Bush and Obama, and even before that, have continued. I mean, right now, I think the U.S. is involved, at least in combat, in seven different countries. And President Trump has had a lot of time to think about that. He's talked about getting out of Syria, but... Just when, as he was giving that speech, his one of his advisors, uh, John Bolton, who's a national security advisor, was mm-hmm. talking about having Syrian troops there indefinitely and having troops uh, and remaining uh, having a presence in the Middle East until quote Iranian troops are inside Iranian borders, which is just so weird right. to think that the U.S. is talking about that. But yeah, I mean, it is it is just a kind of. It's just a talking point, you know. It's a it's a false it's a false promise, you know. And like you said, I mean, they they consistently. I mean, even last year, I remember we talked about uh, him accusing Iran of being a huge meddling force in in the region, when you know the U.S. is the one that's kind of there. And it, it, it's just remarkable that you know you can talk out of one side of your mouth saying that you're anti-globalist, but then uh, you know continue these policies. So it seems to me that his view of globalism is really this kind of this this picture of like american you know america above all america being supreme like we will not bow down like the whole paris climate accord he was talking about being anti-globalist well that was just working with other countries to to do something and so it seems like this kind of globalism and indeed like a lot of anti-globalist talk just has to do with like america is the number one nation you know yeah and i, and I think if you're looking for a distinction between you know the positions of the obama administration the trump administration i mean obviously there there are many but one of the big ones is the way that trump views military strength as superordinate to our diplomatic relations in terms of a global structure of nations so you know if we look at the things that Trump has said in the UN speech, he shuns globalism in terms of the diplomatic compacts, the treaties, um, specifically NAFTA, the Paris Climate Accords. Um, and then when we see that he goes and talks about military uh, endeavors, we see this very different look at it. It's we need to work together. You need to pay in. These are all mm-hmm, global yeah. problems. And so I, I think he sees the United States role militarily as superordinate in terms of the way that he thinks we can wield that power. And, and Bolton is very much in line with that you know notion of the United States draws its international supremacy from the strength of its military as opposed to an Obama administration that really saw the United States, A, probably not, you know, holding on to that supremacy long term, and then B, really gaining what supremacy it does have from those diplomatic relations. And so mm-hmm. I think we're seeing, in in terms of the way that Trump approaches the world, a bit of a, a internal paradox. You know, he wants to work together to, you know, solve military problems and doesn't want to put you know, American boots on the ground until he dies, you know, obviously in, in mm-hmm. places like Syria and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I remember that Nick Nick Romano, another person at the order, and uh, we were talking about this with Secretary Tillerson and Pompeo. Under the, the Secretary of State, uh, under the State Department, the, you know, the shrinking of kind of the soft power right. diplomacy aspects and the more increasing of, of, of the hard power. Yeah, all of, his, all of his advisors are kind of pro, pro-military. pro And so, in fact, one of his criticisms of NATO is not is is that like you said people aren't paying enough for the military and like expanding the military further so what's interesting to me is that you know it, it is kind of for trump it's 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 politically expedient to say he's anti-globalist but also for his opponents you know mm-hmm. a lot of people in the kind of you know the beltway circle of like you know conservatives and liberals want to say that you know he's anti-globalist he's 
throwing up a bunch of precedent. You know, look at him. He's like yelling at our allies and stuff. So it's kind of weird that you see like on all sides, everyone is agreeing that President Trump is anti-globalist. But in fact, it's like, you know, it's it's not. It's, it's, it's He's not anti-globalist. Yeah, he's just it, maintaining the status quo with some rhetorical flourishments. And that's where I think it's interesting because I do come from this kind of anecdotal background, mm-hmm. you know, small town. The The way that globalism is talked about there is very much, much this kind of Alex Jonesian concept of globalism yeah. as a cabal of, of, you know, small groups of individuals controlling the levers of power on the global stage. I mean, that is not true substantively. But that is the way that globalism is seen and is based. And mm-hmm. we've seen over and over and over again that Trump speaks the jargon and parlance of his base. He does not talk about globalism or hard power, or soft power, or nationalism or patriotism in the way that political scientists do. He talks about it in the way that his base does. And so when he's using those terms, he's using globalist to mean America is not going to be you know, subordinate to some type of, of international cabal that cabal doesn't exist that you know we know of obviously but that's the way that he's trying to signal in this speech and i i think he does a somewhat effective job of that but to the extent that that matters to his base i'm not entirely sure mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think he's certain i certainly don't think he's winning over anybody yeah i mean i, I think uh, i would agree with most of what you said but like regarding the substantive merits i mean there is a there is a theory in political science called like elite theory of like mm. especially in, the, in this country i mean there's a lot of uh there's a lot of political scientists talking about like you know like literally a small group of people controlling a lot of what happens in our quote unquote democracy and so i do think that at least um a lot of people generally intuitively believe that yes it's kind of this kind of globalist mentality is is somewhat true but like you said i think that the alex jonesian world of it the view of it is also racially imbued like you know this whole the globalist kind of slur right um it, it seems, seems to be more nativist, kind of. Uh, and, and we're going to get into that with the whole green card thing. So, yeah, I think it's interesting. But I do want to talk about the uh, – if you have something else to say. Yeah, about I mean, so I think this kind of conversation elides into the um, policy that you send an article in the Slack chat about sure, the, yeah. the drug policy. So if you want to just give, like, a brief overview yeah. of what's been going on there. I mean, so they announced last week that basically they had an event inviting member states to join this kind of revamped U.S. war on drugs uh, it was called the Global Call to Action on the World Drug Problem, and I think a hundred hundred countries signed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has like a it has a four pronged strategy, quote unquote. They want to do demand and supply reduction, treatment, and international cooperation. But basically, a lot of people who didn't sign on to it were saying that you know the U.S. is treating this as a kind of a crime problem, whereas in these in our countries we we treat this as a health problem. And you know I think I think it was one country that said that the the U.S. is taking us backwards. Uh, that was oh, that was a director for drug policy in Latin America who said the U.S. is taking us backwards. Uh, and so, yes, obviously there's some disagreement on that. But yes, a hundred countries have signed on. That's quite the globalist measure, if you ask me. Right. Yeah, and it's so interesting because the the background of the U.N.'s policy on drugs is really one that was has been pushed by the United States historically. So in 1961, we've got something called the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, and that was essentially a U.S.-led effort to have the U.N. signatories all proscribe drugs in their countries and have a regime, a regulatory regime, as well as a penal regime that criminalized and made illegal all, uh, essentially all narcotics. Uh, Marijuana was added later in 1975 to be one of those prescribed drugs. And so 
you know, I've been doing a lot of research on this, and you know, I think this is one of the areas where you know we talk about this term Western imperialism. I, I think it's often misused, but this is one of those areas where I really see this vestigial idea of imperialism. We are mm-hmm. exporting our puritanism on drugs, and it's it's been disastrous on the world stage. We look at areas like the Philippines, where we've got Duterte essentially summarily executing drug yes. dealers, and, and, and pr- Trump was praised Duterte for his right. anti-drug I policies. Mean, and so you know. The United States, even when we look at our system because of the system of federalism, our states can't, you know, our states are are legalizing marijuana, you know, pretty quickly. And it'll probably be almost federally legalized, you know, in in Mm -hmm. a couple decades. And so the same policy that we're trying to get these, you know, UN signatories to uh, support, we can't do internally. But the problem in the United States is awful. We've talked on the show repeatedly about the way that drug criminalization encourages mass incarceration and encourages death and, and crime. Mm-hmm. But when we look at the United States, we're a country with a relatively strong rule of law. When we look at other areas, when we look at other countries that don't have the ability to enforce these, the the penalties are incredible. In, in Venezuela and in, in other South American countries, these drug cartels and drug uh, gangs are, are essentially, you know, the the dominant you know, political powers on on the stage, and so that is a direct result of the you know single convention and the later treatises that added onto that and encouraged such a strong penal regime. And I think we look at every you know national security issue, every you know world global problem, and underpinning that, underpinning terrorism is a strong drug trade. Underpinning the the unrest in the South American countries is a strong drug trade. And this is all because and I don't want to be too reductive. I mean the, there are other factors going in. But it does stem back to this push in the 1960s to get these countries to heavily, heavily criminalize and, and punish the drug trade. And so mm-hmm. when we look at this, I, I agree. Recent, you know, recent country, recently countries have been moving towards treating this as a uh, mental health issue. We've seen specifically in um, uh, Portugal the the full de- yes, decriminalization yes. of all of all drugs and, that, and it, decriminalization is an important term because technically they are still illegal but there are no criminal penalties mm-hmm. associated with them so and, and they have like you know safe, safe injection sites right, and they're exactly and, we're, and what we've seen is while there has potentially and and studies are, are not yet out on this um there has potentially been some rise in the use of or the the frequency of first occurrence so people are more likely to try the drugs out we've seen problematic addictions go down you know so the the mm-hmm. things that we're exactly worried about treating have actually receded and when people treat this as a mental health issue as in, as in opposed to a crime issue we see really good results especially even in european countries mm-hmm. uh, yeah, canada I, specifically i mean i think that that's the that's the problem i mean there's a lot that you said that i would agree with and some of i would disagree i mean the whole thing about the western imperialism i mean obviously we've talked about how my views on Western imperialism, and I do believe that this is just one of many examples of it. I don't, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think the framing is is the problem. You know, this the United States, for all its talk about you know being free and whatever, it has a very kind of conservative, sort of authoritarian mm-hmm. framework about drugs and as this sort of crime problem. And I mean, that quote kind of articulated exactly, you know, we, we don't treat it as a mental health or, a, or any kind of health pro- issue where other countries, whereas other countries do. And, you know, in the United States, especially we talked about the drug policy here. And even though, you know, we're talking about legalizing marijuana in many of the liberal states, uh, the fact that in many of these states, like 
you know, the, those criminal records will never be expunged. Right. Those people will still be in prison. The ones who have already been arrested for those things. It's just ridiculous. I mean, and then just to speak broadly, you know, like you said, uh, in the Philippines and China and Russia, uh, who, who the United States is ostensibly like not supposed to be uh, working with. Right. Um, I mean, but these are all there are you know only two countries that are not signatories to the United Nations, and so that the yeah. this broadly covers the mm-hmm. large uh, majority of the world. And North Korea is one of the non-signatory countries. I can tell you that the penalty for drug crimes there is death. So yeah. it's not like we you know we're missing them. But I mean, I I think it's important to really hone in on the ways that this causes human suffering i mean there are tangible you know unfortunately studies are are very difficult on this matter because it's very you know difficult to relate it all back to drugs or relate it all back to drug gangs but i mean you can think of the death just internally in the united states or in south america just anecdotally and think that the number from this must be in the millions of the the just the number of people that have been killed because drugs are so criminalized and the black market cannot enforce contracts mm-hmm. and so when there's no contract there there are is bound to be violence uh, there's the only other operating mechanism that enforces mm-hmm. that yeah i want to read a, a statement by the, the global commission on drug policy which kind of condemned this uh mm-hmm. this 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 uh, piece of legislation they said that quote attempts to eradicate drug supply and use through prohibition based repressive measures against people who use drugs have proven expensive and counter productive for more than 50 years the u.s government which tried and abandoned alcohol prohibition and now faces an unprecedented opioid crisis should know better than anyone end quote and i think that does really express a lot of my views on it and it's interesting to see because i think that most people you know uh, we have different political views and i think most people who are young and kind of even people who are older at least in the united states i know uh have very kind of are different are differing in opinion mm-hmm. with regards to this sort of position of this really hard on drugs position and so to me it seems like the interests for promoting this war on drugs seems to be kind of coming from a lot of moneyed interests including pharmaceutical the pharmaceutical industry which sees for example marijuana as kind of a an impediment to you know the, making the making money and things of that nature and so it it, it does seem like it, I, I i don't see how this and also militarism obviously oh, yeah absolutely. i mean i'm sure that a lot of countries uh, a lot of you know defense companies uh, and you know army related interests love you know ramping up more militarism mm-hmm. in these in these areas and so I, I imagine that that's probably the reason why these these things are happening it's not because there is this popular like outcry against you know if anything people are out, talking about like we need to treat this issue as a mental right. health issue i mean and, and you bring up the exact right point the idea of, of militarism and, and when we look I don't have the the uh, quote in front of me, but you know, I was looking at a couple of security analysts on this, just the broader point of of global drug restrictions, and they've essentially said that you know one of the main components of national or international terrorism is their ability to control drug trades. I mean, that is because it is a black market, and because you can only enforce contracts mm-hmm. through violence. They are the you know supreme top dogs in the the drug trade there. And that's not to say I don't want to be too black and white and say if we you know didn't have this regime that they wouldn't you know be controlled controlling similar uh, product streams, but we certainly would would see some competition. We would see other legal drugs on the market competing with those in safer mm-hmm. and, and better ways. And so I think when we see the you know vast majority of of funding for you know groups like um, the Taliban 
coming from their their ability to control poppy production in those yes. countries. You know, I, I I see really no reason to make a national security defense, which is what Trump and, and many of his advisors mm -hmm. were doing. In this. if anything, you would be making the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I really think that this is misguided, and we talk about this you know idea of the policies that he's enacting don't you know fit with the rhetoric mm -hmm. on globalism, and this is just exactly another example of that. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, the final point on this, you know, people say like, oh, you know, I, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm against the war on drugs, and I support you know decriminalizing marijuana, but uh, you know, I think you and I probably maybe have this kind of view, like that I don't think goes far enough. You know, right. I mean, the Portugal position is decriminalize all drugs. And, you know, you would think that like if the hard, like like you said, if the harder drugs are decriminalized, that doesn't necessarily mean that people will use them. Because if in fact, if there are other drugs that are like less hard, right. quote unquote, th that are easier to obtain, I think people would be deterred from that. Yeah. And, you know, in a lot of places, San Francisco is trying injection sites for heroin, yeah. especially. I mean, it's, and it's always important to remember that that the social stigmas and the actual negative consequences of drug use are by far the, th the thing that, you know, keeps people from using mm -hmm. these things. The, you know, the ability, the negative effects that they have on your life are, are the real reason that people aren't, you know, shooting heroin. Yeah, it's not yeah. that, I mean, like, the, the, and that's because we know that drug prohibition doesn't actually make it all that more difficult to get these drugs. If you are a yeah. dedicated user, you're going to attain these. I mean, if heroin was legal tomorrow, I wouldn't just go and Right, exactly. And that's, then that's the question you... you you want to ask people when having these conversations, do you really, you know, ask yourself if heroin is legal tomorrow, would I go to CVS and, and start shooting up? Or is it potentially true that the social stigma or what I think the negative consequences are going to be are really keeping me? And it's not the fact that we prohibit it. You know, I think there's a lot of causal uh, misdetermination there. And mm -hmm. so you sure. know, looking at decriminalization, especially on the global scale, I think the Trump administration is taking us in the exact wrong direction that we need to be going. Yeah. And uh, speaking of other things, uh, we have to move on. But y yes, Trump is revamping the war on drugs. And he's also doing this kind of this, I mean, continuing a war on immigrants because of this new policy that the Trump administration has announced, which is a new crackdown on immigrants applying for green cards to live and work in the United States. Under the proposed new rules, applicants could be denied green cards if they have ever used public assistance, including food assistance mm -hmm. or housing vouchers or received discounted prescription drugs through Medicare Part D. And that was kind of constructed by Stephen Miller and it's called the public charge rule and it's been widely denounced by advocates for immigrants and the poor and yes many people are calling it a vicious yeah. policy so Wes I wanted to get your general thoughts yeah and, and real quick just to uh, raise another technical issue we were talking about this in the slack chat but it's a, it's mm -hmm. a hugely important uh, question for college students is we are not yet sure and I have not been able to find out whether FAFSA uh, federal um, aid for students is going to potentially, you know, find its way on that list of, of public aid uh, things that would potentially get you uh, prohibited from getting a green card. So that's going to be something that we need to keep an eye on. Students who are uh, undocumented or potentially documented, uh, I, I really, um, you know, we'll be watching this story. But to get to the the policy itself, you know, Stephen Miller, I think, when we look at Trump and immigration, we actually probably should just be looking at Stephen Miller because he is mm -hmm. so much the progenitor. He's the architect. Of all, yeah, he's the architect, the progenitor of all of this uh, policy. And so I, I tend to only view this from the position of Trump's base. And so I, this is the melding of, of two things that invigorate his base more than anything. It's the, the attack 
on uh, the social safety net and attacks on immigrants. I mean, mm-hmm. that the, those two are more exciting to his base than any other two issues I can think of besides gun, guns and abortion. Uh, and so looking at the actual substance of this policy, what we're seeing is that, I mean, already we have severed uh, citizenship from um, these, you know, citizenship for these individuals from these social safety nets. So this is mm-hmm. a retroactive doing of that. And, and you know, it, it doesn't really seem to have a whole lot of logic to it. I mean, when these individuals are coming in here and using this, and and I, I should say that we don't really have numbers on how extensive this is is it's... well uh, we have numbers on legal immigrants we know that right. 382,000 legal immigrants would be affected and then on non-citizens i mean oh, we don't even know yeah and so i you know i i think one of the arguments against illegal immigration is that they come here and use our social safety net and that's why mm-hmm. we can't allow them to but that's not true i mean the, to the extent that illegal immigrants or undocumented um americans get social benefits it's a, we take care of them when they go to the emergency room, and B, their kids get to go to school here, yeah, uh, at least until high school. And so, you know, if if we start seeing attacks on those services, um, that's that's where we're really starting to get into trouble in terms of you know illegal immigrants applying for citizenship or applying for those green cards. Mm-hmm. Um, but remember, green cards are on a provisional basis, so. You know, those wishing to continue using that that green card exemption have to reapply. Um, yeah, every so often, I, I can't remember you mm-hmm. know, how frequently it is. Um, but you're you're exactly right to say four hundred thousand or three hundred eighty thousand people affected by this. I mean, the green cards are essential. Essentially, I don't want to say equivalent to citizenship, but they essentially allow these people to operate as yeah. American citizens. I mean, they're, they're a leg in. And so when we look at, you know, legal theory on uh, retroactive punishment, it's essentially, it's, it's, it's unconstitutional. You can't retroactively punish an act that was legal. So if there's not a statute actively against it, and the statute is, is enacted 10 days after I commit the crime, you can't go back and punish me for it. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what we're seeing the Trump administration doing. And so it's so hypocritical to come from this law and order yeah. you know, Republican administration to see that they don't really have an understanding of the way that the Constitution protects rights and, and, and protects the rights of, of you know both American citizens and undocumented Americans. Yeah, I mean, you were mentioning in you, you published an article recently in the Order about uh, a, a thing that was happening at the Nueces Mosque, right? And I think a lot of people, what you pointed out is that a lot of people don't know that you know non-citizens also have rights that are guaranteed to them. Yeah, and, and it's I mean, I, I've been reading a bit on this idea of retroactive um, legal or retroactive illicit you know behavior and and Mm -hmm. the constitutional and so there's actually a strong first amendment argument to this um so essentially the the idea goes that you know both actions and speech can't be retroactively criminalized you can't say hey that offended me but you know from a community standard of today so you can't go back and say a thing that he said five years ago offends a community standard which is the thing that is used as a kind of metric uh for for assessing whether speech is obscene um so and that tends to not be a real problem Mm -hmm. in terms of the way i mean because speech or you know community standards typically evolve to be more progressive and and liberal in the way that they treat speech but a strong first amendment argument could be made in the same way that you know the these you know americans 
under the green card and and then that, that, it's important to house this in the first amendment because that is the broadest right protected um for for non-documented or undocumented mm-hmm. americans and so this idea of retroactive punishment is one that I think is really undermines the the logic mm-hmm. of this um, and, and exposes the vitriol, exposes yeah. the absolute heartless vitriol behind this. Yeah, like, I think that ap- apart from the sort of the constitutional question about like, I think I do think it is part of this kind of vile policy that is part of this, you know, nativist package that we were talking about earlier about like the, sort of this kind of and, and it does appeal to many for broad portions of his base of this kind of white power kind of mentality and uh, Apart from just the, the moral aspects of, of, of this, there's also a serious like health question. And I think there was a, there was an article I talked about in the Slack chat. It was by Libby Watson about you know the serious health concerns that can happen because of this. So not only will it uh, impede you know and it will prevent people discourage you know undocumented citizens and people who are you know who have green cards to get vaccines, right. which could cause a serious problem in terms of like you know, herd immunity. Uh, it could also lead to increased use of emergency rooms and emergent care. It would reduce revenue for grocery f- f- stores that rely a lot on food stamps. And, you know, it would lead to more uh, uncompensated care and worse health out- outcomes for those people. And so it does have a serious uh, public health concern right. too so not only do you have to consider like the moral aspects but there's also a, like a lot like, like you said the logical reason for doing this it's going to be if you're talking about national safety and you know security it's going to be making it a, a less secure less safe yeah you know? and, and we should note that you know for those of the i mean the the fraction of green card holders using these public services is not that large i mean it's i don't have the number in front of me but most green card holders hold pretty high wage positions and and are not mm-hmm. in you know, low skilled or or low wage positions that require them to go on these services. But we should also note that these, you know, services get more expensive when you pro or as a nation, we pay a higher cost for people not using these services and, and going to other avenues than we do for just allowing them to use these services. And so, I mean, there's a libertarian argument about, you know, mm-hmm. whether we should just give them cash in exchange or instead of the, the social safety net. But when we look at things like, um, you know, federal funding for snap, the food programs, the alternative to that, is you know them putting a higher burden on charities who are already stressed to the max and so mm-hmm. that becomes more expensive because you know the federal government can buy in unbelievable bulk and the snap program is is food stamps but um there are also government programs that provide direct food relief uh and, and then you're exactly right to say you know uh situations where the the emergency room is going to be flooded with people who have the flu because they you know weren't allowed to or weren't able or were too scared to get that flu shot th- that mm-hmm. year yeah. and so again i i want to really you know hammer in this idea of this is just you know we're two years into this administration now or almost two years and you know we're just seeing these come to light and so they potentially have you know another you know two and a half years to get there and so i i want to suggest that this is you know something that could expand into fafsa could expand 
into you know mm -hmm. really impacting college students lives i mean we were talking about daca just this time last year yeah and exactly. it already has had an impact on students lives i mean you can talk to people there's thousands of people here who are uh, in texas who are you know university students who are under the daca program or like you said many many people that we know right. ha have uh, are taking fafsa and would, would, would could get their citizenship revoked if if this if it comes to that yeah and so I, I, it's it's so difficult to look at this administration and the way that they treat immigration and and the lack of nuance in the mm -hmm. way that they treat immigration. I, I again, I should re like you know restate that I'm open border, so I I you know think that mm -hmm. all immigration is is probably good immigration, but when we look at the you know people that the administration chooses to you know penalize almost the most is. DACA and, and green card holders? Are, I mean, are you kidding me? These are yeah. the most productive of the immigrants that we have. And, and that's not to say that um, undocumented or non-green card holding immigrants aren't productive. They by far are, and they mm -hmm. are an actual net um, producer for the American government because they so often have to get fake Social Security uh, and fake driver's license and pay taxes but aren't eligible mm -hmm. for those benefits. And, so, and, and even if they weren't, I mean, the moral thing of like... You right. Know, I, I mean, the moral argument stands yeah. supreme, certainly. But, you know, it's the way that they treat immigration as this this blanket idea of the the dreamer and the green card holder and the, you know, the DACA uh, recipient is they view them as equivalent to, you know, their poster child one off, um, you know, immigrant who's committed a violent yeah. crime. Yeah, it's it's, it's yeah, it's a it's the ridiculous racist conflation that has a lot of and, and it is just a testament to how weak the democratic party is on this i mean we were talking we just last i think last friday we had we saw the ted cruz and beto O'Rourke right. debate and you know you and i were talking about like how poor you know for, for example but beto o'rourke is in a you know in a, in a state with hundreds of thousands of undocumented citizens and you know there's there's a large population that would be seriously affected by these policies and just the disappointment and the embarrassment, frankly, of mm -hmm. his performance there, I think, is just shocking. But uh, unless you have anything else to say, I, I do want to move on to our final story for today. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think that that basically sums it up. Um, I, I think again, we want to just keep in mind the moral argument of the the suffering that this inflicts on on you know Americans that we know. I mean, I I, I don't want to make a carte blanche statement, but. You probably know somebody who is going to either be affected or have a family member mm -hmm. affected, especially if they're at the University of Texas. This could really hit home in, in a lot of significant ways. And so keep it, you know, just keep your eye on that idea that this uh, bottom line affects human beings. And, and when we look at it, it's just morally reprehensible. Mm -hmm. Sure. And before we move on to our next section, I want to say that the section of programming was brought to you by Capital Metro. More information at capmetro.org slash UT. And so I want to move to our final story for today, which is about tech companies and privacy, because mm -hmm. major tech companies and Internet service providers told a U.S. Senate panel on Wednesday they support federal legislation pr to protect data privacy, but they want Congress to preempt tough new rules adopted by California. Mm -hmm. So they kind of want their privacy, these privacy regulations on their own terms. Companies support giving 
users control over their data, transparency over how data is used, and the ability to more, uh, move their data. The personal data includes web browsing history as well as other consumer data. Right. Now, the California law has a bit more broader uh, definition of what is personal information. And uh, many people, including Amazon, was talking about how uh, that is too broad of a definition. So, Wes, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, in the California uh, legislation is based specifically on some European um, stuff. I, yes, the, the European Commission has right. uh, a privacy regulations that are far more expansive than the privacy regulations we have here. Yeah, and, and the Californian uh, lawmakers that I saw proffering this bill uh, cited some of those protections. Um, but as so, you know, from a free market standpoint, this is actually something that we wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, or really a, a big business uh, free market. This is mm-hmm. a pretty classic case of rent seeking in the federal government where a big company who has established a a monopoly or near monopoly position is able to use its you know sway in government to essentially protect its interest in in the you know the face of of some type of either threat from another company or in the face of, of stiffer regulation in, in other states. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this goes, goes and has some really good parallels back to the way that uh, Rockefeller and Carnegie asked to be regulated, you know, wanted to have yeah, regulation on their, own to, terms. Right, on their own terms to protect themselves from threats mm-hmm. and from and specifically the operating mechanism. Uh, when we look at this is the compliance costs that come with this. Uh, and so, you know, from a liberal left position, I, I think it's troubling to see that they're trying to preempt this stricter regulation. But from a libertarian position, I think this regulation, both on the California end and, and in Congress, is completely misguided because of the way that it stunts innovation through increasing compliance costs. And, mm-hmm. and what we see with that is that big companies are actually in favor of these compliance costs because they can internalize them and they don't have to worry so much about threats from smaller companies who can't get off the ground because they can't you know the the data regulations that we see in Europe are they can't be handled by any other companies besides mm-hmm. the the big Google, Facebook, Twitter. Nobody has the administrative capability who's a startup or who's a you know a new idea in the game to deal with this. And so, you know, Mark Zuckerberg keeps the former logo or former uh, insignia of the company, the huge company, which I'm gonna forget the name of, uh, that formerly occupied this massive building in California where Facebook is headquartered, as a reminder of the fact that. You know, big market share companies can. I think it was get, Oracle. Yeah, Oracle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, can get pushed out and can go under. And so, you know, Zuckerberg, even in his hearing, was saying, you know, Senator, I we want to be regulated. And my team will work with you mm-hmm. to produce regulation, but I want it to be on my terms. And, and I, yeah, and and just to explain why, I mean, the reason why the California law and the European law is so threatening to them is because it would largely upend, you know, established business models. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a lot of companies like Facebook, Twitter, and Google, they kind of allow, uh, they, they, they generate revenue from targeted advertising. Right. And other companies, like, it would also affect ISPs because they also collect data. Mm-hmm. And some companies would stand to lose even more because they collect, you know, quantity, they collect data and then they sell it to third parties. And right. Oracle and a number of other country, uh, companies do that. And so uh, I think from my position, I think that, you know, it will upend a lot of the established business models. But I do think that that's important. I mean, I think that, you know, that business model needs to be changed because, you know, it, it, there's a serious concern about, especially when you were mentioning, you know, monopolies. Uh, 
even when we have, I mean, first of all, Amazon, Facebook, all these companies already have a huge market share in these. I mean, they're behemoths, and it's because of the the, the lack of antitrust law in this in this country, and you know the fact that a lot of these companies have kind of been able to grow expansively without anyone stopping them. I mean, so I, yeah, you know, obviously you and I are going to disagree about why yeah. that is. I would say that they're massive behemoths because they offer a fantastic service that people want and, and you know, outcompete their competitors in a, in a field that's very competitive and, you know, only really has space for a couple of, of positions, of market share positions. You know, they're the, mm-hmm. you know, network effects of social media um, platforms are such that, you know, you really only can have, you know, two, three, four vying for top dog and anybody who's less than that is not going to have enough people on the network to, to be well i mean it's not just social media i mean it's like google and amazon have you know uh, 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 fingers in many pies sure i mean and, 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 and with amazon is particularly it really does affect uh the other businesses because first of all they can promote their own their own products they can sell things at a loss because they own the supply side as well as the business side uh, as the demand side so they really do have a very I would say unfair advantage over smaller businesses trying to get into that market. Yeah, I mean, so again, you know, we we don't have to have the the libertarian deep sure, economic sure, conversation yeah. here, but uh, to get to this idea of the the congressional you know legislation that we're seeing, I think it's it's a reason to be concerned um, specifically of this idea of crony capitalism, this you know notion that these companies can try to you know lobby Congress, and that's what they're doing right now. This this bill is has mm-hmm. not you know been passed or has not you i don't know if it's even been proposed no it's just a committee hearing because right. it's in response to a lot of these scandals i mean google for example has had a lot of scandals where like they found that they were recording people's location services mm-hmm. even when their features were turned off and it's because like a lot of these companies they rely on like you know these lengthy policies that no one actually reads and they just click i agree and a lot of companies take advantage of that and so that's another thing that like facebook has been talking about like making their policies more easier to understand yeah i mean i so i actually fall into this sort of weird camp of of the benefits of zero privacy i you know um i used to really think that that privacy was an important uh concept as it applied to the electronic world and social media and i specifically supported some of these privacy pushes but i've recently come about on the issue and uh, kind of see the benefits of people being able to you know be comfortable sharing their data and and sharing all of their data Mm -hmm. i mean i don't I, i personally i don't care if facebook knows where i am i don't care if twitter or google or anybody knows where i am if they're able to offer me a service free because of it I, I'm all for that. You know, I, I'm more than willing. But the thing is, I'm aware. And so you bring up a good point of the the awareness issue. And yeah. so when I look at the transparency clauses in these bills, and I haven't, you know, like I said, there's or like we talked about, there's no proposed legislation. But if you look at Europe and if you look at California, the transparency clauses in these bills have a good thrust to them but the actual technical specifics of it make it such that they would essentially eliminate the the practical use of the the data that you know you're you'd have to essentially get um, permission from that user each time you're you're trying to sell their data mm-hmm. uh in specifically in the european model and so i mean it just doesn't it it you know negates the actual business model um and so when I, when I look at the congressional bill 
the only thing that really disconcerts me i mean the whole thing disconcerts me but the the you know fact that facebook and google have the ability to get a you know committee hearing yeah and paneled in the first place is disconcerting uh from a crony capitalist you know perspective of the market yeah i mean i'm interested to see i, I haven't really researched the european the the, the, the passage of the data protection acts mm -hmm. in europe and how that's affected the companies there but i really don't think you know especially for these big companies i do think that they will find that, that these these established business models have really do have a, a serious consequence on people's privacy and especially when they have these companies that are so big i mean it's 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 really quite i mean i think we've been talking a lot about like antitrust law and be being applied to these companies and i think we need to see a, a broader a push for at least some kind of oversight and that is uh, again it's very difficult to say this but like i would like to see it unadulterated by all these companies trying to get you know committees and hearings and stuff like that but you know i i i think that's the only re way we're going to be able to see things go forward and it has happened before i mean we saw that microsoft you know many years ago had had, had an issue with antitrust i mean alphabet uh the reason alphabet exists is because of of, of antitrust as well partially right i mean so i I, it's it's difficult because I do want to see some of the transparency changes that you are suggesting. I even want to see specifically some of the privacy protections mm -hmm. that you're talking about, but I, I want that to be more voluntary than I think your uh, policy specifics might suggest. But uh, the, mm -hmm. the thing that I'm worried about is the same thing that, that worries me about their ability to impanel a committee hearing in Congress will worry me about the congressional or the regulatory oversight commissions I and mean, we were talking about this with uh, senator warren's yes. accountable capitalism bill that was I'm, a, I'm, very podcast right, I'm very concerned about the way that um you know when you con concentrate power and the, the power to regulate you know social media and internet companies would be one of the the most you know important powers that the federal government would wield mm -hmm. in that sense but when you concentrate power public choice theory which i find quite compelling leads me to suggest that they would be just as susceptible to the you know sways of, of crony capitalist and the um you know ability for facebook and these big companies to influence them and, and specifically in the tech field because it is such a technical issue because these you know issues are and do require you know, a specific technical background for the regulatory um, commissions. Yeah. A lot of those people are coming out of the world. It's the same thing we see in oil and gas, where because of, they are, you know, such technical issues. The a revolving lot of, door. Yeah, the regulatory people are coming out of the oil and gas business. They're going back into it. They're going back in with, pro, you know, or they go into the regulatory agency with a um, job 10 years down the line and uh, kind of pat on the back, hey, you know, do us well in there, buddy, uh, from the, the big businesses. And so I, I would be very worried about the same dynamic going on in the regulatory and and specifically the worry is on that you know end goal of innovation um i think you know some a small startup that has to deal with a very powerful regulatory board or uh, committee to just get started to be doing any of this type of work is, is gonna you know face a very much more uphill battle than they already do in a competitive market mm -hmm. yeah and i i think that's something important that we should continue to discuss um we, we, I think last last week we talked about this on the podcast, which is you can find that on Apple 
I think it's uh, what's uh, Apple, right? A- yeah, Apple you can find it on iOS podcast at the Texas Order podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we were talking about the Accountable Capitalist Act, and we had a lot of disagreement on that. But uh, in these last few minutes, uh, I do want to we want I do want to talk about like what we're doing at the at the order. I mean, obviously we're all part of the order. Matthew and Nick also as well, who are not here in booth. But uh, yes, we're working on the podcast which will be i think they'll be have, have one this weekend and we still have to figure out what we're going to talk about i think the plan is to talk about uh i don't know what I'm yeah i mean so we were looking at you know potentially um decontextualizing or and breaking down that like high school civics textbook uh idea of democracy and looking at the way that um it, it kind of affects two different categories politicians specifically in the way that those politicians act and then voters in the way that voters mm-hmm. don't act in the same way that you know yeah. a, a kind of high school understanding of government or civics might lead you to think so i mean we're i try to talk about that a bit. yeah i think that like it, it we we have we actually find out have a lot of consensus about a lot of the established norms about you know democracy and how the u.s system operates and how politics operates there's a lot of misconceptions about that yeah. and we've been discussing them too about like you know a lot of institutional problems with the way that we think about these things and you know it, whether it's the voters or whether it's the institute the, the structures right. the political structures and we, we're going to discuss that yeah. further and i think specifically the one of the the issues i've talked about um you know previously on declarations from independence and um you know hope to talk about with this is the you know assumptions that underlie the way our or the way our democracy is supposed to orient our uh, policy towards the best policies. I, I think there are a lot of assumptions about the way voters act that, uh, you know, are, are fundamentally flawed and, you know, fit into this idea of why democracies produce such crummy policies. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, we're going to be discussing that. And then, of course, we have the midterms pamphlet that's coming up and we're, we're working through that diligently. And, uh, uh, we have a few more minutes, but I think we're going to just wrap it up early. Uh, and so, yes, I mean, I want to thank uh, Wes for joining me today in, in, in the booth. And, you know, rest in peace. And they can, I mean, they're not dead, but they'll, they'll be fine. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I want to thank everybody. This has been Not Fake News on 91.7 FM KRX. Tune in next week. My name is Anurag Singh. And as always, take care, everybody.